planned by any means, just the way it's come. And uh, we're finishing up the fourth section of the Psalms tonight, uh, if I get that far, and I think I will. <coughs> and uh, it's interesting, the subject matter. Here we are the day before, or the evening, just beginning the seventh day of unleavened bread, and uh, happens to be that most of the subject through the next two or three chapters, two chapters, is of rehearsing uh, Israel coming out of captivity, going through the Red Sea, and all the mighty wonders that God did, and uh, here we are on the eve of that day happening. Now, uh, maybe we have God's guidance there and some of the timing of these things. If we'd have postponed the Passover a couple days, like some tend to do, uh, it wouldn't hit this way, would it? So, maybe God works these things out. If you think I'm long-winded sometimes, uh, maybe he's leading us to a certain point. Or maybe short-winded sometimes, uh, so I don't get too far too quickly. That works too, doesn't it? At least it has for the last few days. But, in any case, uh, I find that quite interesting, because things began to look up uh, right after they came through the sea. Well, until they griped. But... uh, The next section of Psalms is a very inspiring section. It's the last one, and I won't get into that uh, tonight, but um, it's it's a real upgrade for tomorrow and and thereafter until the end of the book, that last section. So let's go back into 105. Some of you were not here last night, but uh, there is so much in this section about praising God and singing hymns to His name and how He reigns and getting our minds on God and off our pitiful, poor old selves and on His glory and His majesty, the things that He can do. And we spent quite a little time on that last night in in, uh, 104 because He goes through and shows so much that He has done and is capable of doing and the promises He makes that He is again going to do. So with that preface, let's go into 105 where he says, oh, give thanks to the eternal. And that's, that's par for the course in this particular section of the Psalms. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Now, we saw that some last night in that God's great wonders, we know from other passages, are going to be shown here in the end so that everyone will know from the east to the west, around the world, that God is God. And that is the whole point of all the end-time prophecies, really. It isn't death and destruction because everybody's so bad. Now, the death and destruction will come because people will not acknowledge who the great God is and His power and His strength and humble themselves before Him. Therefore, all these events have to occur in order for Him to show His majesty and who he is, because they don't know. Even in Egypt, or Mitzrium, when they were in captivity, they forgot who God was. And it was said, God will deliver you. And they said, well, which one? Will it be the alligator God, or the carp God, or the trout God, or the fly God, or the, you know, on and on it goes? Uh, No, the eternal God. So he is going to make known his deeds among the people, and he's preparing a people right now to do that very thing, right here at the end. Sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk you of all his wondrous works. Now doesn't that echo what he says there at the, uh, I guess it's the end of Malachi 3, where he says that when he makes up his jewels, he will keep those in mind who talk about him and his wonders. So here we're instructed, and then he tells us in Malachi, that's where he's going to look when it's time to start passing out crowns and rewards and jewels and gems and so on to his bride. Glory you in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the eternal. This one's in our hymn book as well. Seek the eternal and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Never let that get away. Always seek Him henceforth. 
remember his marvelous works that he has done. So before he even gets into uh, the stories of remembering the wondrous works of God, he tells us that's something we need to do. And then the psalmist goes on to do that very thing, to rehearse some of those things for us. So they're fresh in our minds. It's easier to walk in faith, to trust God, and to believe He's going to fulfill His promises of the future if we rehearse and review and remember the things that He's already done that He promised He would do. So that's what He's telling us to do here. Again, I, I can't help but always think as we go through these, this, this isn't just filler. This isn't just, let's go through the Psalms. This isn't just for inspiration. There is a prophetic flow through here that is right where we are. And as I said at the beginning, it's amazing to me that Tonight begins the last day, and the events of the last day we're going to get to very shortly here. We'll rehearse them just as the day is coming to us. To me, that is impressive of God's ability to guide and lead us to what He wants us to see in a timely fashion. Uh, we're supposed to give meat in due season. Well, uh, I didn't plan it that way, but the section of Psalms we have been going through during these days have been about Christ and the things He went through uh, at His death and resurrection, uh, the things He went through in His life that we're going through. Then it comes down to uh, the things that we are about to do if we submit to God. So remember his marvelous works he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O you seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen. Where are we reading this? Why are we reading this? Aren't we the children of Abraham's seed? Aren't we those that he chose? Aren't we some that He has chosen out here at the end time as well? I'm, I'm not reading this to a bunch of Chinese. This is the people that are the seed of Abraham. You children of Jacob, His chosen. He is the eternal, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And that judgment is about to begin, and it will go around the earth. He has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. So He started it with Abraham and told him, to your seed forever. A thousand is uh, a huge number, nose to tail through the generations. But He's saying, this, this is a perpetual thing. This is to go on generation after generation. There have been a lot of gods of the past that have been forgotten why did this nation preserve and pass out the Bible? What nation on earth has passed out more Bibles around the world than any other? This one. This one. we got Bibles going all over the world. No one else has done that. Oh, I mean, some have to some degree, but not like America has. We not only still have God's Word, we ignore it, but we have it. And we share it with others, whether they read it or not. So he made that covenant with Abraham and Isaac and confirmed it in Jacob for a law, for an everlasting covenant. He mentions a thousand generations and then he confirms it by saying everlasting, even beyond that. This new covenant that we have entered in with Christ and the Father uh, is forever. It's for eternal life. It's to reign on the earth not just a thousand years but forevermore. Saying to you, will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. When they were but a few men in number, yes, very few, and strangers in it. Remember, Joseph went down and sold into slavery by himself, and then Jacob came down with 70 souls. There weren't very many there in that huge land of Mitzrayim. 
Now, when they went to the land of Canaan, I, I don't know whether we've ever even thought of this. I haven't until recently because I didn't have the knowledge wherewith to think it. <laughs> you, you can't think things if you don't have a certain amount of knowledge to do it. But they had been, as we'll see over and over in this chapter, in captivity in the land of Ham, uh, specifically to the tribe of Mitzrayim. So they had been in a black culture, and they had been misused, abused, and made just out-and-out slaves by the tribe of Mitzrayim. Then God delivered them from there, and where were they then to go? Into the land of the Canaanites, of the Hivites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and all those tribes of Ham. Now, we've questioned, why in the world, if you spy out the land and you see all these wonderful things in it, would you come back and be afraid? Well, they were going from a black captivity and now into a land filled with black people. And they had the inferiority complexes. They had the fear. They had all the emotions and problems that people in our land now for several generations have been dealing with as a result of slavery. And they were going through those very same emotions that have occurred in this country because they went from one tribe of Ham and into the land of another tribe of Ham. And there's another reason they were afraid. I'd never thought of it because I never realized uh, that the land of Canaan was filled with the children of Ham. But that's very clear now. So he said, I will give you the land of Canaan for your inheritance. And there were just a few of you. Started out with 70. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. So they went from the kingdom of Mitzrayim, which God destroyed before them, and into the land of the Canaanites. Now, yeah, they should have recognized the power and the glory of God that he destroyed the whole empire of Mitzrayim, and therefore he could deliver them from the Canaanites. But they were very human, and they had human fears, just as we have human fears. There is a great deal ahead of us today, and God's great glory will be shown just as it was then. That's why we're rehearsing this right now, and we, why we rehearse it really in one form or another every year, during Passover in the days of unleavened bread, when these plagues were going on, and finally they were delivered, they wandered in the desert for a few days, and then on the seventh day of unleavened bread, I'm sure, is the day they came across the Red Sea. So God's great deliverance spiritually is pictured on Passover uh, through our Savior, and then the deliverance on a physical level uh, is also shown on the last day of unleavened bread. But that also is a, a spiritual type, because Christ made it possible for our sins to be gone, and then we go through seven days or six more days then of expunging those and thinking about ourselves and the things that we do need to change, and hoping that God gives us the deliverance that we need, whatever is ahead for us. Uh, so they went from one kingdom to another. He suffered no man to do them wrong. Yes, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not my anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Now, you remember the time when Abraham lied about Sarah? Well, that's my sister. Well, not entirely a lie. She was half-sister. But he put it off as if that's all she was, was his sister. And Abimelech could have received the death penalty from God for messing with Sarah there. And yet, God preserved, and Abimelech was appalled. He says, why didn't you tell me that was your wife? Well, you'd have killed me so you could have her. He says, no, I wouldn't have touched her because I was afraid of your God. <laughs> they, they, they miscommunicated. They didn't understand what each other was thinking there. And uh, Abraham wasn't as bold and as brave as perhaps he should have been. 
But God saved the day in, in any case for both Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. Well, the famine that came throughout the land that caused Jacob then to have to go down into Mitzrayim, uh, God perpetrated himself. He called for the famine on the land. Just as Joe, or, uh, Amos says, he'll call for a famine on the land now, not just a famine of bread, but a famine of true bread, the Word of God, which we have today. It's very, very hard to find the truth of God anymore. I can remember in the 60s driving across the country, and there was not an hour of the day or night that you couldn't tune in to the World Tomorrow broadcast. It was everywhere. Uh, whether it was on the huge stations like Nashville or Cincinnati or, or some of those, or on small ones or on the Mexican stations at night, you, you could flip across the dial and find it virtually any time you wanted to. It was there. Well, it's not anymore. It's not anymore. If you're an insomniac and you want to turn on the TV at 3.30 or 4 in the morning, you might find one of the small splinters left preaching about alcoholism or something, but not much about the Word of God. It's just not there. They don't say much. He broke the whole staff of bread, so there was a famine that was widespread. He sent a man before them. Even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. God plans these things out so carefully. He never misses anything. He chose the son that he wanted, Joseph, who was his father's favorite. He sent him way down ahead of time and planned that he go through prison, that he go through all kind of slavery, so that he go through all kinds of things to prepare him for the job that he was to do. And he put him with Pharaoh, with Pharaoh's servants, with the people he needed to rub shoulders with to prepare him for what he was to do. Well, God had this thing all planned out. Do you think he doesn't have today all planned out ahead of time? We would be foolish to think that any of this is going to be happenstance or at a whim. He knew the exact timing he needed, what age to send Joseph, how to get him there, who he should be, who would even buy him at the slave ring, and where he would serve, and who he would rub shoulders with, and then be sent to prison and sit there for seven years with no clue as to why God was doing this to him. And he looked at the whole thing in a positive way and did so well with the other prisoners, they put him in charge. He never got down. He never got negative. What an incredible, incredible attitude. God knew what he was doing. Sent Joseph down. If he'd have sent Reuben or one of the others, it would have been a problem. But he sent Joseph. And he's working through Joseph today. Ephraim, primarily and Manasseh secondarily. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we are seeing is a repeat. We're about to see, we've seen fam spiritual famine in the land, and it's continuing and getting worse, and we're about to see real famine of physical bread in the land. It's been a very dry winter. There are fires burning all over the east now. Uh, you don't think of forest fires much in terms of the East Coast because it stays so wet, but not much snow, not much rain, and they're fighting forest fires back there. So he sent Joseph, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron, so they put him in irons. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Eternal tried him. You think he's trying us? You think he's working with us? You think he's doing this to the church with a plan in mind? God knows exactly what's going on. He caused it, 
just like he did these things in here. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. So he came to Pharaoh's mind and attention. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance. That's quite an incredible thing when you think about it. But here's this guy that was put in jail for an unrighteous reason, kept there seven years, and out of prison and out of irons, he's exalted. Now, how often does that happen? Once in a while in our land, they'll discover through DNA or some such thing that they've incarcerated someone wrongly, and they might turn them loose, but they don't uh, get promoted to second ruler in the land and made ruler of all the substance of the country, do they? You might be a little surprised when Isaiah 44 and 45 come to pass that the one that God has put in charge of the temple treasures and the gold and the silver and the riches of the whole the land as this nation goes broke and its economy collapses and God gives to his people his treasures, hmm, lo and behold, we're going to have a repeat of what we're reading right here today. To bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. <laughs> what if God caused one of our people to go up and be, put them in charge of Congress? That would be a fun thing, wouldn't it? I don't know that that'll happen, but that's kind of what we're talking here. It's tantamount to the same thing. Israel also came into Mitzrayim, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. So God sent Joseph there ahead of time, went through all that stuff, prepared him, put him in charge, and then Jacob came down. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. We've estimated that there must have been at least three and a half million people who came out because he said 600 thousand men, not counting women and children. So if there was a woman for every man, roughly, which there normally is in society, uh, there's a million and two, and the, the Mitzrayimites had already said the children of Israel bred like rabbits, so they must have had lots of kids. Oh, I, I would say three and a half million is fairly conservative. That's a lot of folks to line up and bring out. And made them stronger than their enemies, so that uh, Mitzrayim began to fear them. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. So they were made to make bricks without straw and get the same amount coming and all those things where they cracked down on them and made it worse. And God was behind all that. He sent Moses, his servant, with Aaron, whom he had chosen. Amazing that Moses was born in the water and then led them through the water, isn't it? Um, there's some things about that that may come to light that may prove to be quite interesting. But he did the same thing with Moses that he did with Joseph, didn't he? To, to get them in there, he worked with Joseph. And then to get them out, he sent Moses, after he murdered somebody, out into the wilderness for 40 years before he came back and led them out. He sent Moses' servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen, Moses' brother. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. Now, God didn't have to use Moses and Aaron to do that, did he? God could have done it, but he has chosen throughout history to use people. He could have prepared a boat for Noah. But he let the poor fellow work for a hundred years to build his own boat. God puts us through a lot sometimes. But he wanted his signs and wonders shown in the land of Ham through Moses and Aaron. And he is going to do the same thing again uh, through the Cyrus that he has chosen and through his people Jacob to show his wonders to the whole world. Makes it plain in several places. 
He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. They just got worse and worse and worse. Now, those could have just appeared, but then what would the Mitzriamites have thought? Where did these come from? But if it came from Moses and Aaron, then they had to associate it with Moses and Aaron's God, especially since Moses and Aaron, Moses the leader, but Aaron the spokesman, since Moses had demurred over that. But word came to them, well, this is our God doing this. It isn't us, it's our God. Even the king's chamber was full of frogs. He spoke, and there came different sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. Any of you ever had a head of lice or had your children get lice? It isn't much fun. And to have them all in your bed and all through your hair and all through your clothes and on the dog and the cat uh, and in your food would not have been much fun. He gave them hail in place of rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and broke the trees of their coasts. He spoke and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number and eat up all, did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He attacked everything. All their food supplies, all their water supply, everything. Then killed their firstborn on top of it. Well, God just completely destroyed that empire. Well, read the book of Joel. What's it about? About the day of the Lord? About the end of times here? And what does he talk about? Some of these, the locusts, maybe talking about modern warfare, but he uses the same metaphor, at least, uh, to show the destruction that's going to come here in the next few years. Why does God keep bringing up the captivity back then? Because what happened then is about to recur. Uh, verse 36, He smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength, so that Pharaoh, and there was not one family that not, did not have a firstborn die. Not one family, it says. That would be pretty devastating, wouldn't it? What if tonight, every family on this property lost a child? That would be, oh man, can you imagine how tomorrow would be? <laughs> that would be a grievous time. That was kind of the final straw, wasn't it? Then it was, get out of here and get out now or we will kill you all. Not only did he deliver them, but in what manner? Verse 37, he brought them forth also with silver and gold. And there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now, they must have had an elder generation. They must have had a lot of old people. They must have had a lot of young kids and so on. But he brought them out with not, not only had all the foodstuffs and the water and the firstborn been killed, but then he gave them all the riches and treasures of the land as well. He's going to do that again. Just as the, the destruction of every bit of the productivity of this once beautiful promised land is taken away, God is going to give a few people a Garden of Eden. He is going to give them all the gold and the silver and the temple treasures and all these things, just like he did back then. And not only that, he says he's going to restore sight and hearing and strength of leg and arm and give us the health and strength to do his work so that there will be no feeble people among us. Some of you old folks need to realize you're going to have to go back to work. <laughs> 
But you know, you wouldn't mind if you had the power and the strength to do it. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? God had to have healed them, didn't he? We just read that 103 last night. Forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. We're, this, this thing is building here. Mitzrayim was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. Well, it was really the God that was behind them that they feared at that point, but they didn't know that. They feared the people. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. What does he tell us he's going to do for us? He's going to be a wall of fire around and a covert from the heat. Uh, Isaiah 4, I quote that one a lot from Jeremiah 2, but I'm going to flip back to, to Isaiah 4 because it says essentially the same thing. We've been there before. Uh, but while we're showing what he did for them, let's see what he's going to do for us again. Zechariah 2 and Isaiah 4 are very, very similar. Um, they'll be called holy. In verse 5, And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense. The exact same wording of what we just read back here in the Psalms that he did for Israel. Puts it a little differently in uh, Zechariah 2, but here he puts it exactly the same way. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. There's going to be huge hailstones again here at the end, up to 120 pounds, or 120 talents, whatever it is. Uh, there, as it says in the book of Revelation, they had hail and Mitzrayim. So God is going to recreate, both on the good side and the bad side, the things of the past. Verse 40, the people asked, and he brought quail, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. So they had manna, and they wanted meat, so he gave them quail also. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. I, I just never had, reading the account in Exodus, really put it on quite that level. Uh, I, I was thinking of Moses standing there, and he's going to speak to this rock, uh, and then he got angry and struck it instead, and I was thinking a little spring came out. I, I mean, that's just, my imagination didn't really go beyond that. But when you read the account here, uh, it gushed out like a river. Well, if there were three and a half to five million people there, that covers an awful lot of area, and it would have taken an awful lot of water. We have just such a spring coming right out of the rock up here at the head of Zion Canyon. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Uh, if God hasn't set some of these things uh, as signals and signs for us here at the end. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness. God was happy to do that. And gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people. It was already there. Trees were planted, crops were in, houses were built, cities were there. They basically just took over. That they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Uh-oh. Uh, he gave them all these things, and then he instructed them through Joshua as they went in to do the things that make for a good society. Praise you, the Eternal. So on down in 106 then, starts it out the same way. Praise you, the Eternal. O give thanks to the Lord. Is this just repetition for no reason? Or is he trying to get across to us here that it is these things are rehearsed and are beginning to be ready to come to pass that our praise and our thanks need to go to God. So it's reiterated time after time. 
O give thanks to the Eternal, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Just a few chapters ahead, it endures for 176 verses, one right after the other. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Eternal? Who can show forth all His praise? I mean, we can sit here and read about it. We can imagine it a little bit. But we can't comprehend. <coughs> Just like I underestimated the trickle of water out of the rock. And then I read here about how it gushed out like rivers. Who, who can really describe it? Blessed are they that keep His judgment... And he that does righteousness at all times. He even warns us in the beginning of the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, don't do the things your fathers did. Don't kill the prophets like they did. Uh, you know, do it different. And then he shows us in 2, 3, and 4 how he's going to do it and what kind of leadership he's going to give and on and on with detail about the way it will be. Verse 4, remember me, O Eternal, with the favor that you bear to your people. O visit me with your salvation. So here's a human being with all the trials of being human who is crying out to God, give us this that we so desire, that I may see the good of your chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He says he's going to stir people to come and build his temple and serve him. And we want to see that good. We want to be there when that happens. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not your wonders in Mitzrayim. They remembered not the multitude of your mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. So he says, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat, generation after generation. We have our troubles. Nevertheless, in spite of all that, he saved them for His name's sake, that He might make His mighty power to be known. Do we think for a moment, I doubt it, that we really deserve to be blessed the way God is going to bless His people here in the end? Do we think we're good enough that He would just automatically do it for our sake? Or is it here again that we fall so short of the mark and yet, in spite of ourselves, He is going to show mercy and He is going to bless us with these things for His name's sake. doesn't say there in Isaiah 45 He's going to do it so that we might look important. No, He's going to do it to show everyone from east to west that He is God. It isn't about us, it's about Him. It's just that we are His servants, tools in His hand, to help show His mighty wonders. Let's grasp that. He's putting us in the place of Enoch, of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, of uh, James, Peter, John, Jude. He's putting us, brethren, in that position. They were used in their day, as he's saying here, to show that God was God. Now he's taking a bunch of weak and base from whom he is choosing a remnant to do the exact same thing. What an enormous calling we have. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, verse 9. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. Should it come as any surprise that he tells us to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, even in Babylon and Micah 4? <laughs> That's what he's done before. Shouldn't surprise us in the least if we consider history. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeem them from the hand of the enemy. Won't he do that when the new world order comes and sets up the abomination in the temple of God, in the true Jerusalem of God, and we flee for our lives and he gives us a place of refuge? Says he will, and protect us, just like he did there. 
redeemed them from the hand of the enemy, and the waters covered their enemies, and there was not one of them left. What does Revelation say? Revelation 12. He says, when Satan is cast down, the church flees for her life, and God sends out a flood to destroy. Wow. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Ten Commandments didn't, movie didn't quite get the story right. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. Right on the banks of the Red Sea. Song of Moses. Song of Miriam. And then they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. But lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. We need to be careful we don't do the very same thing out here in the wilderness and the desert. And he gave them their request. Quail. Water. But sent leanness into their soul. It would make you kind of skinny inside if you realized you were going to wander around until you died in the desert sand. They envied Moses also in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. Who's this Moses? Who do you think you are, Moses? Who's this Aaron? People tend to do that. Well, God put Moses there. God put Aaron there. We need to be very, very careful the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. So when people rebelled against the leadership God sent, bad things happened. And it lets us always remember that if God starts showing us dramatic blessings, He will also show dramatic chastening. He showed dramatic blessing in Acts 2, and He showed Ananias and Sapphira dying as well. So, with drama comes the good and the bad. If God doesn't hear us much now, He also doesn't chasten us as much now. But when things get dramatic, it will get dramatic both for good and for evil. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb, Mount Sinai, and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eats grass. The great God of creation had delivered them, and they exchanged that for a golden calf that eats grass. Well, that one didn't, but, uh, I mean, the God is of the beast. Well, in India, you know, they kind of wander around. Nobody kills and eats the cows because they're a god. And that's the way it was back then. I think that's a carryover. If you look at the people of India, I think that there's a great deal uh, of the blood, probably, of Mitzrium right there in, in, in India. Um, they, they worshipped all the different animals. And Israel did the same followed the heathen around them. They went right back to the same gods they had had in Mitzrayim. Exchanged the great god for a calf. Forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Mitzrayim. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and terrible things by the Red Sea. Hundreds of thousands of chariots and horsemen and soldiers went down there, I'm sure. You don't send 300 people against... Three and a half to five million people. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. Yea, they despised the pleasant land, the promised land, the land that had everything that you could possibly need, Deuteronomy 8. They believed not his word. Oh, we can't go in there. They're bigger than we are but murmured in their tents and hearkened not to the voice of the Eternal. Therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their seed also among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. That happened a little later on. After they wandered through, their children made it into the promised land. Then they didn't do what they were supposed to do. 
And God scattered them again, this time by ship. From here, by ship, across the Atlantic, and then they migrated up through the Middle East and through northwestern Europe, where many of them still are today. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate the sacrifices of the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague broke in upon them. We're sacrificing our children right now by the millions. I saw a statistic recently that we've had about 57 million uh, abortions in this country since they started doing it. I think that was the figure I saw. I might, I might not have remembered it right, but it was an astounding number of babies they've killed. Passing our children through the fire to Molech. Uh, the, let's see. Verse 29, they provoked him to anger with their inventions, and the plague broke in upon them. Then stood up Phineas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. If you remember that case, uh, they had begun to marry, I think it was the Moabite women, and worship their gods. And as a result of the idol worship, God sent a plague that killed 24,000 people. And Phineas saw a man go into the tent with one of the Moabite women and went in and stabbed them both through to the ground. And the plague was stayed, but 24,000 people died. That's what God thinks of idolatry. Um, in verse 31, And that was counted to him, Phineas, for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. I don't think Phineas is mentioned in Hebrews 11, is he? I don't remember it if it was. He said there are many, many others that he didn't have time to talk about. But Phineas was one of them that will be remembered forevermore because he stopped a plague that had killed thousands of people. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. Where's the waters of strife? Might be interesting to see where that turns out to be someday. I have an inkling it could be Grand Canyon and the Colorado River with the uh, four and five rapids they have in there, uh, very turbulent waters of strife. And Ezekiel's temple, from Ezekiel 40 to 48, if you multiply or divide it out, and the, the distance is given there, I've said this before, it would go from about the Grand Canyon up to around Provo. Um, is the river of strife or the rivers of strife on the south end the one we're talking about? I don't know. Very possible. Is that the river of Egypt? Maybe, maybe not. Is that the big enough picture? I don't know how far south Egypt was. Some have thought the Amazon might be the river of Egypt. That makes the Nile look like a little creek. We'll, we'll sort these things out and they'll come to be known one of these days. Verse 33, Because they provoked his spirit so that he spoke unadvisedly with his lips, speaking of Moses. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Eternal commanded them. Told them when they went into the land of Canaan, destroy all these people before you. They didn't do it. And it came back to bite them. But they were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. Always is the bottom line. Good, God's people, did not influence evil people to do good. Evil, most generally always, influences good to do evil. That is the history of man. Learned their works. That's why God tells us to come out from the world and be apart from it and not have our fellowship and our friendship and our children dating and having to do with the children of the world. That isn't God's way, Old Testament or New Testament. And at the end, he even says, I'll take my people clear out from them so they won't even be around them. Verse 36, and they served their idols, which were a snare to them. <laughs> Get rid of God and serve the idols of this world, you're going to wind up in trouble. 
Yes, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to devils, just as we're doing with our abortion clinics, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. So they did human sacrifices because that's what the Canaanites did. Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions or ideas. Therefore was the wrath of the Eternal kindled against his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. Sent them into captivity once again, and has he not abhorred the church today? I think abhorrence would be a pretty good word when you puke us out, which is what God said he did. I'll puke you out on the ground. I've never liked to puke. It just isn't a fun thing. It doesn't taste good. It doesn't feel good. It just isn't much fun. And you want to clean it up, flush it, wash your mouth out just as fast as you can. We became a very foul taste in God's mouth is what we became. And hopefully we're getting to the point that he will not abhor abhor us anymore, but... Have mercy and turn to us. Now, this final summation of Israel's history as he goes through many of these stories is just before the acceptance that comes beginning with chapter 107. Uh, He gave them into the hand of the heathen, verse 41, and they that hated them ruled over them. Their, their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them. Many times he delivered them. But they provoked him with their counsel, and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. That's why he tells us to cry out and don't give him any rest until this happens there in Isaiah. Keep after him. He heard their cry. Remember how he heard their cry in Mitzrayim and sent Moses? took a while, but he, he began to work on the problem. And he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. And gather us from among the heathen. Isn't that exactly what he says he's going to do? Right there in Haggai, Zechariah, some of the other scriptures. Isaiah 54. They'll come from all the lands, a remnant, to build his temple, to build Jerusalem, to come and worship God. Save us, we cry, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen around the world from all corners of the earth, symbolized by coming to the four corners area of this country, to give thanks to the holy, to your holy name and to triumph in your praise. Won't it be a time to sing hymns and sing songs to God when we see this gathering occur that he promises? Blessed be the eternal God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise you, the Eternal. Fitting way to end that section of the Psalms. Then we get into the final section tomorrow. And uh, it is indeed the most inspiring of, of all five of the books because it sees through on into the blessings of God and what He is going to do for His people. So we'll get there tomorrow and I'll explain that a little more as we do. So we'll be dismissed for tonight.